Father, it is good to pray. It is good to be with you today. Lord, I just ask your um, words to be on my lips. I ask for a blessing that would multiply prophetically as a seed. Yes. Uh, that what comes out today can be used. It can be watered on. It can be planted. It can be fertilized. And it can be grown up into the full maturity in the body of Christ which you called us to even this year out of Ephesians 4. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for this place. I thank you for the beauty of this place. I thank you for the beauty in the spirit. I thank you for the beauty in the natural. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You are worthy to be praised. We give you all glory and honor. Jesus. Amen. So, yes, Jonathan and I met in 2010. Thank you to Father Rick McKinnis. It's not really officially titled that, but he's kind of a father to Connecticut. Uh, many pastors. And I met Rick in, back in 2007 when a meeting was held throughout the state, leaders to gather to discuss revival and awakening and what the Lord wants to do in Connecticut. Um, I'll give a bit of background on myself. Jonathan gave a little bit in terms of where I come from, what I do, but I grew up um, uh, sons of Peter and Alma Healy. What, uh, my, my mom is from Ireland. She was a, uh, she was a Presbyterian in the south Lord. of Ireland, <laughs> which is uh, unusual. Um, if you're in the south of Ireland, it's good to be Catholic. Yeah. Not much of else. And that was especially true back in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s and the 50s and preceding that. You know, you've heard of the IRA and all these things. So my mom uh, comes from that background, met my dad, they met in St. Croix. My dad's Catholic, which is interesting. And they didn't really, they weren't following the Lord when they met. Uh, I was born, they lived in, uh, I was born in Houston. My dad uh, worked for uh, a couple of companies that were specialty chemical companies in the printing business. That was what he did. He was a salesman and sales manager. And my mom was a mom. She uh, was raising us up. She, her background was a nurse. Um, and so there's a spiritual dimension to my um, who God has made me, which relates to the church unity movement. So we grew up in these different, uh, from these different denominational faith backgrounds. But then there was an awakening that swept through where we lived in Allendale, New Jersey, back in the early 70s. And it was part of the charismatic movement. And my mom was awakened. And she got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And she taught me everything she knew. She, I was like baby bird. She was mama bird. And my dad was uh, an alcoholic and a lot of trouble caught in his work life. But he got saved. He got baptized in the Spirit even supernaturally coming home on the LIE from a three martini lunch. He got delivered all at once. Um, just blathering away in tongues. It was raining out. He was weeping. And he got delivered from alcoholism right there. Um, so we started going to different churches. Evangelical churches, Pentecostal churches. Um, 
Assemblies of God churches, to uh, traditional churches, mainline churches. We went to a variety of places. So I have this interesting background, kind of a potpourri of um, denominational experience. And it's, I know it's part of my calling in terms of the uh, unifying the bride. So coming up, uh, I had great ambitions to make a name for myself, do well in business. I was always like a little entrepreneur. My dad always encouraged me to be involved in business. My, he would watch Wall Street Week in Review with Louis Rukeyser and Washington Week. Those were like his two shows that he would watch, and I would faithfully watch them. And so he instilled in me this interest in the political realm and the business realm. And I really took that to heart. Uh, when I went off, when I was in high school, I was constantly working different jobs um, and doing some exciting things, developing business. And I even told my dad at one point, like, oh, you know, I don't even know to need to go to college. Like, I'm just going to do all this and that and make this money. And, <coughs> and so, yeah, anyway, he encouraged me to go get an engineering degree, which I did. Um, and uh, part of growing up in our household, I kind of got a chip on my shoulder about proving myself. Like I had to prove myself to my dad, and I had to prove myself to the world, and I had to prove myself to myself and peers. And that was a big fuel for me that drove me towards success in business. And um, it was pretty relentless for a while. So I, I had this upbringing, being saved. You know, part of my background too is that when I was young, five, six, seven. Uh, I was completely and supernaturally healed of allergies. I had all these terrible allergies when I was a kid. And my mom brought me to a minister. His name was Norval Hayes. He's still around. And he is a businessman who has a healing ministry. And back then, he was one of the guest speakers that came in the circuit of this awakening in Allendale, New Jersey. And my mom heard about him and said, oh, I'm going to bring Greg because maybe he could be healed of these allergies. So he prayed over me, and indeed, I was completely set free and healed, like as a five or six-year-old kid. And I used to hate the needles and the doctor and all that, I remember it vividly. But what I didn't figure out till later in life was that that was not only a gift to me then, but it was a gift to be given and multiplied. It was also an anointing that was imparted to me. I didn't understand that till later. Likewise, I had a terrible... Uh, night terrors and uh, nightmares where I was constantly being bombarded every night again as a five or six year old with dreams of snakes devouring me, killing me, biting me, all this was, was terrible pits of vipers, snakes over and over and over and over again. My mom would pray for me every time I'd wake up screaming and yelling but to no avail would happen over and over again. So one day we were watching television together, my mom I uh, like to watch the 700 Club, and there's a segment on that show where people get words of knowledge about what the issues are out there that people are struggling with, what they're being tormented by, and then they pray for healing. They pray for deliverance. So when one day we were watching the program, and um, Pat Robertson says, there's somebody out there who's been having these nightmares and the fear of snakes and of you being attacked, and God wants to set you free. And I was like, Mom, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so she turned to me and said, well, let's pray. Let's pray with him. Let's pray with him. And so we did. And after that prayer, that was completely broken off. Wow. Thank you. I never had those nightmares anymore. And again, didn't realize it at the time, but now I look back at it, and I know there was not only a blessing at the time, but there was a multiplicative benefit and an anointing imparted for deliverance for others. And I also understood it was a strategy. It was a demonic strategy trying to attack me in the night season to despise the gift of prophetic dreams and visions in the night season, which is something I've gifted with. And God speaks to me that way, like people in the Bible, you know? And so it was a strategy to come against me. But the reality of the kingdom is it's multiplied back in terms of setting others free and then receiving the gift of God that God has for his church through the prophetic gift. So anyway, um, moving forward, I decided to confirm my faith when I was about 16 in water baptism. It was something I wanted to do voluntarily. It was not something my parents suggested. I just wanted to do it. And it was like a seal over my life. I, I failed to mention, I was also baptized in the Spirit when I was a kid, speaking in tongues and moving in other gifts just as a seven-year-old. And, um, but 16, this was like more of a faith proclamation that I just felt uh, led to do, and I was bawling and weeping. I was very uh, impacted by it. And it was, those things were like a seal over my life, because then the next phase of my life was much more prodigal. And I went to achieve all of this greatness, both in college and then in business. And in that pursuit, it really became a pursuit of self. So I was, I, I knew the Lord, I believed, and didn't deny the faith, but I wasn't acting in obedience. I was really pursuing, it was like, it was the all about me show, if I'm honest. And so, that, that led to actually great success from a worldly perspective. I did well in school. I got great job offers and opportunities. I had a great beginning of career. My career was like a meteoric rise in a variety of capacities, and I ended up on Wall Street. Because to me, growing up, Wall Street was the pinnacle. If you wanted to go and have success and wealth and do anything you wanted to do in business, you wanted to be on Wall Street. And this was drummed into me through, as I was mentioning, like some of the TV programs my dad and I used to watch together. Um, so I went after that. I went after it hard. And I was blessed in it. It was almost like, it, it's interesting, because in hindsight, I, I saw it then as a product of my own greatness. But now I look back at it and I was like, God allowed me and afforded me this success and growth because it was my heart's desire. And it was more really about him opening some things up than it was about you know anything that I accomplished or achieved. Uh, but at the time, I was blind to that. I just was a hard charger and type A guy. Took whatever ground I could. Um, so anyway, uh, fast forward to him about um, 20, in my 20s, And while I was living in Manhattan with Bridget, God came to me in a very 
loving way. He um, very graciously wooed me back to him. Not in my trough or my destruction or my falling off or losing everything or you know, any of that. It was like it was really at the crest of what I was doing in business. But what he showed me was a mirror and showed me who I had become. And I knew that was not who I was. But I didn't, it was like, I couldn't tell until he showed me that mirror. And it was an invitation. It was a wooing back to him. And so I took that invitation. I was like, I'm not the man I want to be. This is not good behavior in life. And, um, how I treat people, how, you know, what the pursuit of what, you know, gets my gears going, you know, partying and just rabble rousing and having fun and having success and even being you know, bragging about it and so forth. So, um, but the Lord was very gracious to me, he moved me back, and I responded. And so we moved out of the city. I continued uh, at that time with Morgan Stanley. I was in investment banking, which was a dream job for me. It was like I was at the place that you could only get to if you had the best education, the best opportunities, the best grades, the best pedigree, the best uh, door openings. And I was there. And it was not what I thought it would be. It was not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> in fact, it's terribly impressive in a lot of ways. Um, without going into that. But we came out into Westport, Connecticut. My mom uh, did some church shopping for us. I was like, knock yourself out, Mom. If you want to go find us churches, that's wonderful. We'll, we'll take your advice and we'll check them out. So she heard about this man, Pastor Paul Teske, pastor of a Lutheran church in Westport, Connecticut, but it was moving in the spirit. It was having a, its own charismatic awakening. And so we went, and when I, as soon as I heard him preach, um, I knew it was the Word of God. I knew it was the Holy Spirit. And I told him that right away. And so we stayed, and we're still there today. And that was a real growing up period in ministry and getting more involved with things that God cares about. I was just uh, moving more and more into it. I effectively became, even though I was a business person and a lay person in that traditional definition, um, I was moving more and more into the role of being his side-by-side type of associate pastor almost, like doing different ministry work and so forth. Um, Becoming in the elders and leading the church from a, an administrative standpoint and stuff. So, anyway, um, <coughs> things were going great. I, and then I also expanded into other ministry areas, some of these giftings and callings like church unity, uh, revival, awakening, business ministry. I got involved with a number of those initiatives, and God sovereignly placed me with incredible mentors, people like Harold Bredesen, who was a founder of the Charismatic Movement. I met him in 2002. And he, he loved me, and I loved him. And he personally loved spending time with me, and he would mentor me and just 
share all the richness of his experiences and what he had been through. It was just wonderful. Um, he was our pastor at large at our church, which was kind of cool. Um, then there was another apostolic figure who came in, and his name is Jan Nell. And um, Jan was, uh, we did some incredible things with Jan. Robin Marston, who's also a business guy, came in part, was, he was part of our church. Robin got me involved in the pastor's forum and the unity movement at the same time he brought Jan into town. Then we had kind of a movement of awakening and uni of unity and growth in the spiritual things, um, partly because of his catalyst and his catalytic effect. And I became kind of a coordinator of prayer and a coordinator of this movement that was going on um, without really understanding why or how it just happened. And, uh, but, you know, this is all a setup. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, I'm trying to be the best Christian man I can be while still working on Wall Street. That's kind of the background there. In the Western culture and mindset, in the United States church, I was trying to be the best lay minister that I could be, still working on Wall Street. Well, God had other plans. Come on. And basically said, like, I'm going to take you out of the box, and there is a lot more here than what you've experienced. I didn't know. You know, you don't, you don't know. You just know what you know, and you do what you can do. But I knew I was time-constrained. And there was the pull of career and making money for our family to, and also to give. And believe me, on Wall Street, that takes a lot out of you. And in fact, it's, I'm now convinced it's a form of slavery. And you know, if you're not careful, you can waste your whole life going after the conquest of career and even making a good name for yourself. It can even be honorable in men's sight. But if it takes us away from what our calling is, what our destiny is in the Lord, it's no good. And our destiny cannot always be fit into seminary and then becoming a full-time pastor or minister uh, trying to raise money. So God has other plans and other models. In uh, 2000... Uh, okay, so 2001... How much time do I have now? Sorry. Um, <clears throat> we've got about 25 minutes. So 2001, um, I have a couple of strange experiences. This is right before 9-11. I was still working in investment banking at the time. And uh, long story short, like I hear in July of 2001 at our house on Cape Cod, I hear taking a nap, waking up from it this phrase, which was like a gooey, sticky phrase, and it was, uh, money loves you. Mm. And I was like, oh, what's that? Like, who's saying that? And it kind of, it sounded pretty good, but it was like, <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I was looking at a different job at another bank and looking for a big pay increase and a promotion. And, um, you know, I'm like, wait, I, I got to go to the scripture right now. So I found the scripture that says, you all know, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
So I'm like, ooh, it's the opposite, but I think it still applies. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, look, people who are in a position like me, who have uh, made uh, money and are wanting to utilize their gifts for God, are happy to give. And we were generous givers. We wanted to support the work of God. So one of the ways I looked at that was, well, if I had a lot of money, then I could do a lot of good, which can be a trap in mm. itself. Mm. And I think that's one of the messages for the Church of Reformation. Mm. Be careful not to put stumbling blocks in front of people and say, you know, oh, we need this money, and you're the money man. Like, give us the money. Like, that's a big trap. Mm. And if we're in... in adding to the slavery of God's people by doing that will be unto us. So, um, that happened. Then I was in, in August, like a month later, I was in, I was on the West Coast. I was with my uh, friend and boss and uh, he was a, probably a probably better way to describe it, his colleague. And um, we were out on the West Coast calling on a variety of banks. So we were a bank to the banks. We, Morgan Stanley acted as an investment banker for banks merging with other banks, banks raising capital, banks doing whatever they need to do, or insurance companies and other financial providers. So it was kind of like really in the heart of how our financial system works. And so we were calling on um, many clients that were out on the West Coast we would meet with CEOs and CFOs mainly. Talk about strategy, where they're going, what they wanted to do, how we could help them with our services. <coughs> and while I was out there, I, my boss says to me, oh, hey, uh, you know, after, we, after work, do you want to go grab a drink? And I was like, hmm, whoop. It's a red flag that came up. It's like, okay, he's never asked me out for a drink before. <coughs> Something's going on. And at that time, you may or may not recall, but this is after the bubble burst, the tech bubble burst, and Wall Street was reeling. So um, the party was over March of 2000, but everyone was hopeful in the economy and the culture in Wall Street that it was going to turn around by the end of the year. It never happened. And then it just got worse and worse, and layoffs were just going on throughout the street. People on Wall Street, it, it expands and contracts brutally, violently, depending on how the markets are going. There's no concern or compassion really there for people's lives or their livelihood or anything like that. It's a very much a doggy dog type of deal. So I'm I get this like red flag going up like, oh man, what is he gonna talk to me about? Is, is this like the preparation for letting me go? I've never been in this position before. I've never Lord, you've never I've never been without an income. I've never been without this success. I've never been without all these things happening. So what's going on? Like, And so I get on my knees, and I'm up in the hotel room, and I'm praying. And I'm like, Lord, I need you. I need help. I need answers. What do I do? And so he gives me Isaiah 52, which to paraphrase is, Come out, come out, depart from there. Touch no unclean thing. I'll be your foreguard and your rear. You won't leave in haste. You won't leave in flight. I'll be with you. Now, that 
gave me great comfort because I was already looking for another job anyway. I kind of wanted that other job um, at another bank. And I was just very concerned that that other job hadn't come through. What would happen to my financial future? What if that job never comes through? What if we lose our income? What will we do? We have a young family. How, how are we going to support things? What's going to happen? Like all these what ifs, what ifs. But I got great comfort from what the Lord was saying. And I took it on the face of it simply like, look, you are going to leave Morgan Stanley, but it's not going to be in a terrible way. It's going to be fine. I'm going to be with you. Um, so that was what really comforted me in that time. I met with uh, my boss later, and it turns out that for that conversation, all he wanted was to butter me up for an upward evaluation. So it wasn't quite what I thought. Nonetheless, the my name was on the list for you know whose head's going to roll next. It was on those lists. Um, <laughs> as an aside, like to, to to reveal how brutal the street can be. In the first round of layoffs, the partners gathered everybody in our group in a room on another floor, like in secret. And the way that it was handled was, do you remember the show Survivor? So the way it was handled was that the partner stands up and he, and he says jokingly, but it was no joke, welcome to the next round. You've all made it through. And I was like, I could not believe he said that. Because of course you end up, everybody gets lopped off in the show and there's only one guy left. <laughs> so I was like, you know, that's not really an appropriate thing to say. Um, everybody's like heart sunk. Um, but that just gives you an idea of what the culture's like. So um, then 9-11 happens. And I was coming into the city that day. Bridget called me on the train on my cell phone. She said, I'm watching the Today Show. They said a plane flew into the North Tower, I think it was. Maybe the South, which, whichever was the first one. Uh, they think it's a Cessna. They're not sure what happened. It's kind of a strange situation. And so I, I'm approaching the 125th Street Bridge, which you can get a direct visual shot of the, tw uh, the trade towers. You always see it from that bridge. And then everybody's cell phone starts to go off. Then everybody on the train, the train conductors make an announcement. There's been uh, the World Trade Center has been hit, it's on fire, we don't have anything more at this time, but we just wanted to convey that to people. So we came into the station, we came out, everybody, I'm going to work, which is over in Times Square basically. So you go from Grand Central Station over to Times Square, it's kind of like a across the avenue blocks in Manhattan, if you're familiar. And when, I, when we all come out, the environment had completely changed. Like, everything was different that day. Everybody is gawking at from the street corners down the avenue blocks, the avenue streets, the avenues, the World Trade Center. And it was just totally on fire and smoking. And everybody's just like saying nothing, staring at it, just hundreds of people. So I walk across to our building. By the way, I'm carrying my travel bag because we're supposed to go fly out to uh, the West Coast that day which was the same flights that ended up flying into the towers, right? So I, I go across, and I have a sense that the Holy Spirit says, like, I want you to pray for the Morgan Stanley employees in that building. Wow. And I was like, 
okay, that's an assignment, I'm taking it, and I'm gonna start praying. So I go across to our building, our headquarters was in Times Square, but we merged with Dean Witter, and Dean Witter's offices were all down in the Trade Center. They had, we were the largest tenant of the building. 3,000 people from Morgan Stanley were in those buildings. They were also there as Dean Witter back in the 1993 bombing, which was also Al-Qaeda. Uh, and uh, there were issues with that, but they learned a little bit from that experience in terms of their s uh, security protocol. So I go over to the building. Uh, everybody's pouring out of the building. And I hear from somebody like, they've evacuated all the skyscrapers of Manhattan. Everybody's flooding out to the street. So I see my barber, and he says to me, hey, Greg, just turn around right now. Don't come around here. Go right back to where you came from and just get out of here. And I was like, uh, okay, because I knew I couldn't get upstairs. So I went back across the avenue blocks, continued to pray, and uh, got on the train, which was chaotic. It was the last train out of Manhattan that day, by the way. And so we were having trouble making contact with friends, loved ones, and I finally got through to a friend of mine who was watching the TV again, and he told me, the towers are gone. And I was like, no, they're not. I just saw them. I was there. They were there. They were smoking and burning, but they certainly are there. There's no way they're gone. And he says, no, they're gone. I'm like, that's impossible. He says, no, I'm telling you, they are. <coughs> we all know what happened, right? Which is very unusual. Like, for the things to completely disappear is just strange. Um, so that happened. And then about a month or two later, uh, I got my notice, but I was prepared in my heart, and I was still hopeful for that other job. Hadn't come through yet. But the Lord told me, I want you to go on this missions trip to Honduras in the meanwhile. And I was like, how could that be the case? I'm supposed to get this other job. I'm supposed to, I could have to fly to London for more interviews or do something else. How can I go? And I wrestled with that. This trip was going out of our church. And um, anyway, uh, go on that trip. And what happened on that trip was amazing for me because most missions trips coming out of the United States are thought of in the context of we're going to bring resources, we're going to bless you by building buildings, digging latrines, uh, feeding you, clothing you, giving you medical supplies, like bringing kind of like uh, things that are physical help to people. Um, there's also the missional component too, but a, a lot of missions work, especially at churches, can often be very centered around you know, providing in these physical ways, which is good. But <clears throat> when I got down there, what, what God sort of impressed on me was like, look, the <laughs> you are coming from this culture with all this know-how and your society, your country thinks it can do everything. But watch how the people here behave in terms of the simplicity of their faith. So what I saw was the people who had nothing actually could teach us something. Because when they, when the rain didn't rain and they didn't have their crops, they couldn't survive, so they'd pray. And when they knew God, they'd pray and the rain would come, and the provision would come, and somehow they would make it through. And so here I was in this congregation of believers having nothing, but yet they had everything. 
And there was no blockade, there was no complexity to their lives, there was not like, oh man, I've got all these to-dos, I've got all these bills, I've got all these mm. obligations and requirements, and I've got to juggle these plates. None of that. It's just a simplicity of faith. And I went back home learning that lesson. Mm. And God was faithful. As soon as I got back home, that job that I desired all came through. It was for more pay, it was a promotion, it was at a time where everyone's getting laid off and I'm getting a guaranteed contract, which was completely unusual. And it was God's gift, it was God's provision. Great goodness. <laughs> Thank you. So anyway, um, the next stage of what happened was out of that next bank, we were spun out as an investment advisor in a type of hedge fund. Uh, so this was like the opportunity of a lifetime from my perspective, and I was like, God, oh, this is great. And I felt like his blessing was on it, like he was going to launch this new business. And then he said, you know, your business is going to become your ministry, kind of like the normal Hayes model. But what I understood it at first was um, something different. I thought, okay, so I'm gonna, we're going to make all this money, and then we're going to do good with it. And now, in hindsight, having gone through this journey, I now know what the Lord is after in our hearts is not to separate money from relationship or money from ministry uh, and, and, and somehow prostitute ourselves to get what we need. Because when you strip out sex from covenant relationship, it's prostitution. When you strip out money from relationship and working with people and loving one another, as Jesus has loved us, it's also prostitution. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting this download through this crazy season because we went through a financial trial. The business was going great and then it fell apart. And the Lord said, stick with it. This is my calling for you. You're going to make it through. <coughs> so in 2009, we just hit a wall. All finance was gone and used up. We had no retirement, no backup plans, no savings, no investment portfolios, no nothing. And we went from a $40,000 uh, a month cash flow need um, to having no income, no nothing, zero, zero. And it was, it was horrifying, I'll be honest with you. Um, but God said, I've called you to do this, you have to trust me. And then he t said to us, I'm going to teach you new tricks ways that you didn't understand how I can operate. And basically what he showed us was Deuteronomy 8 in, in all of its fullness. And specifically Deuteronomy 8.4, which I think it's 8.4, which says, uh, or 8.3, which says, um, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm being a finance person in a financial company and construct. We don't have any profitability. I'm out of money. And what the world would say is you're out of options. You're going to die. And literally, and especially in wealthy areas, that's what people think. There is a hidden slavery and idolatry with regard to money issues amongst God's people. I can just tell you that. Mm. Flat truth. We can deny it, but it's there. And one of the reasons for that is we think the love of money is greed only. It's not. The love of money, Jesus said, and, and Gaylord and I were talking about this a little bit, that if you love me, obey my commands. So there's a principle of love which is obedience related. 
And if we love something, we're obeying it. Mammon is the spiritualization of money. When money starts talking, we got a problem. <laughs> and so when money starts saying like, oh, Greg, you're going to lose your income. What are you going to do? Like, you better do something. You better scramble. Have you ever felt those pressures? Have you ever wondered how you're going to deal with a financial problem? If you hear that voice, and it's not God's, who is the God of comfort, the God of I'm never going to abandon you or forsake you, I'm going to provide for you, your children will never go begging for bread. If that's our God, what business do we have entertaining these voices that say, oh my, if you don't have this, if you miss that job, if that's not going to happen, what are you going to do? You're going to die. That's, that is not the heart of God. That's why Jesus said, don't worry. He really meant it. <laughs> it was not just a theological exercise. He really meant it. He did mean it when he said, look, if the sparrow is taken care of and the lilies of the field are dressed as they are, why do you worry about these things? I, your father knows you need all these things. He's got your back. But in our culture, it's a money-centered culture. Look, let's be honest. We're the wealthiest country in the world. We invented the financial markets. It's now global. It, everything we do in the public corporation, in the bank system, in the Federal Reserve, in the government, it's all centered around this money culture. It is. It's just, you know, it's like the, the frog that gets boiled in the pot. You don't really realize you've got a problem until you're dead. Mm. And in some ways, the U.S. is in that kind of situation. So one of the words that I heard coming up here as we were worshiping was pour a firm foundation. And I'm, I'm saying to this to you because storms will come. Financial storms will come. We saw them in 2008. It was pretty bad. It was a hair's breadth, by the way, from everything falling apart. Uh, the storms are going to come. Jesus said, build your house on a rock. Okay, so in a sense, unfortunately, this is a message of repentance, by the way, much of the U.S. church has built its house on the sands of man's plans mm. and the sands of our economic construct and financial system. Mm. Okay, we tend to look at it oftentimes, we dismiss it, we say, hey, that's just plumbing, it's infrastructure, God knows... He knows that we have to deal with that. He knows we have to do it this way. Mm. Jesus also said, coming back to the, his return, and this is one of the key things of 10 days is preparing the bride. He said, will I find faith on the earth when I return? Mm. Okay? Now, we have a lot of money in our culture. We can do church. We can do programs. You know, we have a... We do have miracles starting to develop, and we see more of the Spirit at, at work, but we also acknowledge that happens more in third world countries. That happens more in Africa when I go on a missions trip. Less so here. But when it comes to financial faith, pure and simple trust, like the Israelites in the desert, only having the manna for provision, there was no currency that was going to help them, there was no money that was going to help them. You know, all they did with their silver and their gold was build the golden calf. They, they, well, they also built the tabernacle. They, they built the golden calf because they wanted the 
Egyptian provision. They wanted the Egyptian food. They wanted the Egyptian ways. They didn't necessarily want their gods, but it's kind of like, well, the gods kind of come with the foods, and the god comes with the, the wealth and the prosperity. So that's what you know they've defaulted back to. And God wants to take that out of his church. If we're going to prepare ourselves as the bride, we have to learn how to operate with or without money. Yeah, come on. God can do it with or without money. If he wants to give us loads of money, that's great. But let me tell you, that's often a complication and a snare. And if our hearts aren't right, it'll be a trap. It's better, and we've experienced this personally, with our homes and our cars and our heating oil and our food, how does God provide things? He can do it miraculously. Yeah. We've lost that inheritance in the, in the Western church. Mm. We've lost a, a big part of that inheritance in the Western church. Why, if you look at, look at Jesus' life, look at his ministry life, and then look at the apostles after them. Look at how they dealt with money. Look at how they dealt with provision. Do you ever see Jesus doing a fundraiser? <laughs> he didn't. He didn't pass offering plates around and say, guys, this is a really good ministry. Can you support it? It's fertile soil. Like, God bless you. <laughs> he didn't do that. And I'm not trying to poke fun, but I'm trying to make a point that if we're not careful, we'll be like the frog boiling in the pot. That's right. And Jesus told us there will be a great falling away before he returns. This is an area, I believe that will be one of the things that causes the falling away. Mm -hmm. People losing faith in God because they were told by ministers and other people, like, look, you know, your God's always going to bless you. You're, you know, if you're in his covenant, like, it'll all be great. Like, you'll always have what you need. You'll never go through. And the implication of that, by the way, is, like, you'll never go through the trial and suffering that we've been through. You know, you could look at our situation and say, oh, man, you know, like, you must have done something wrong. God must be upset with you. You must be under judgment. Yeah. It's like, no, that's a, that's a wrong-minded notion. This is a learning process because the Lord wants to have a firm foundation poured for his return and a perfecting of his bride. And Jason was saying earlier, like, you know, we need to really repent in the United States because we're just, we're in sin. And I was like, well, can you elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> it's like, I'm telling you that, you know, when I go around the world and I see all of these other cultures and how on fire they are for God, and we're just, you know, we're kind of, we're not there. Like, we're not, we're not where God wants us to be. That's the Laodicean-style church. I'm wealthy, I am in need of nothing. If we're self-sufficient in our ministries, by the way, that's the new American dream. new American dream is... I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to make it big, I'm going to be successful, and then I'm going to rest and enjoy myself. Like, that's kind of the American dream. Right? Even, in, even embodied in our president, for example. But the original American intent, the original American dream was not that at all. It was the pursuit of God and the freedom to worship Him. All the way, aggressively, full-heartedly. And that there would be a freedom in that. That's, that was the original American dream. So, we need to come back to those basics. We also need to examine our heart. Where have we been complicit where those money strings have caused us to, in the name of either good stewardship or being, uh, you know, uh, 
orderly and rightly and God will always provide for his work so I've got to help him out a little bit like just be careful with those kind of things because it can reinforce the problem and the slavery and you've got a whole army of guys like me who are business people who can get the wrong idea that the value of their life is defined by the money they have and that gets reinforced in the church unfortunately too often it's not that God doesn't want to use business people to release supply. He actually does want to do that very thing. But if we do it in the wrong way, if we're like the Israelites who were trying to worship a little bit of Baal and a little bit of Jehovah, it's not going to work out. That is not the foundation of the spotless bride. Nor is it going to be a little bit of Baal and a little bit of Jehovah like, um, like Elijah had in his contest. And he said to the people, of Israel, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you try to worship both Baal and God? It can't be done. Jesus said it. You cannot love money and worship me too. You cannot worship mammon and God. It's not possible. You can rationalize it. We can fool ourselves, but it's not possible. So, um, there's a lot more to talk about. I'm out of time. Um, anybody who has any questions about this, I'm happy to take them, but I do want to leave you with this. I believe <coughs> that the plan for the bride is God wants to take us into this promised land, but we first have to go through desert testing. We have to learn the lessons of Deuteronomy 8, which is, why did, you, why did the Israelites have to go through that? To test their hearts, so that they didn't say, I did this by my own strength. I did this by my own grandeur. That's the American dream. That's kind of the problem we have in our culture. In ministry, it seeps in. I'm telling you, it's part of the even ministry culture. Is what can we do to make things productive in man's sight? <clears throat> but when we get to the promised land, the, here's the the hope in this is is, the, is as follows: God is releasing now the blueprints from heaven for how to do this well. And this is a reformation not only for the church, but it's a reformation for business and government and the seven mountains. So a simplifying of the seven mountains is, oh, we're going to send the Christians into the business areas and they're going to preach the gospel and get people saved. That's, that's an oversimplification because what God's looking for is the kingdom to be established in the business area. And the kingdom is not going to be established in the system of Bear Stearns. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. It's not going to be by saving Lehman Brothers and making it a kingdom investment bank. Okay, It's going to be the bride of Christ, the sons and daughters of God, rising up and showing there's a better way. Let's operate in the way of forever. The blueprints of forever. That's what Jesus is calling his bride to do. And that's a whole another level of understanding in terms of the kingdom. And there's a whole discussion we could have about like how does the how does the Western economy differ from God's economy? It does very much so. God's economy is an economy of giving and receiving, not of taking and grabbing and pushing and shoving and you know we got to get our beans and count them like that's. That's the world's economy. That's the Babylonian economy. And God is saying that Israel and God's people were in Babylon for a while, but then he calls them out. 
Just as the Israelites were called out to rebuild the second temple, we, Israel, the church, we need to come out of Babylon before the Lord's return. It says it right in Revelation 18.4. That's the same scripture, by the way, I got back in 2001. Isaiah 52 is the same thing repeated in Revelation 18.4. Because that's going to be judged. So Jesus is coming to, my eschatology is simple, Jesus is coming back to judge the world and its sin, and he's coming back to rule and reign in his kingdom. And I believe they're happening simultaneously, and it may not look the way we expected, but both of these things are happening at the same time. So don't get confused. It's The world can be under more and more trouble and judgment while at the same time the kingdom is advancing. Yes. It may not look like we wanted it to, like they wanted a king when Jesus came back the first time. Oh, they wanted him to be like the Roman king or the Roman Caesar. It's not, it may not look like that, but that's his plan. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Amen. Um, so someone had asked me yesterday, so what is Babylon? Uh, let's talk about Babylon and... Um, so, uh, um, I think Greg really hit on uh, the key aspect of what is this Babylon, and I'll just illustrate it. So we're here in 2008. It was the first time publicly doing the fall 10 days, the 10 days that we're talking about, and done it you know, in smaller groups or whatever. Uh, uh, but we're here to do it in a retreat. And uh, my brother texts me, we're just getting ready, and he says the stock market lost 777 points today. And here we are, set apart, doing 10 days fasting, morning prayer. And so I, I kind of got it. Like, okay, this is our first time really, really doing it. Babylon refuses to mourn. Okay, so Bab there's judgment, that which results in judgment, right? That's what the consequence of that refusal to, to reckon with sin results in, is it results in judgment. But my people will mourn before I return. And I felt like at that starting point, we were seeing both things happening simultaneously in the stock market, the system that's Babylonian, and here were God's people, just a small group of them. And um, so I really do think this is key, and definitely this is why we need these consecrated times like 10 days, because God needs time to do some deeper works in our hearts. You know, you're hearing Greg's story, it happened over years and years. I think that's there's always going to be that years and years dynamic. There's also these catalytic moments when God can come in and do a deep work in our hearts. And literally, like lives, lives depend on it. On people getting touched by God and changed quickly because the time is short. Um, God's not in a hurry, <laughs> but we don't want to mess around either. And we need to get people moving.